Good morning, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, as uh, Alan said, welcome to the Leawood campus. Uh, how y'all doing with March Madness? I know a lot of happy Jayhawk fans in the first service. So, uh, I know, we're a mixed group, so, you know, what can I say? Bracketology is, uh, well, you know, it's not an exact science, is it? Who are, who are? Yeah, anyway, enough of that. Well, we're hearing a lot about uh, leadership these days, aren't we? There's a lot of conversation about that term. And particularly in a political season, we hear sort of the shrill sounds of the crisis in Washington, that Washington is broken and needs new leadership. It seems to me against all the noise and against the backdrop of our busy, busy lives, I'm finding the fears of embers or, or fears and embers of anxiety are, are increasingly being stoked, it seems. Uh, and there are reasons for it, because we intuitively know who leads us and who we follow really matters, don't we? Uh, a very insightful book written by Jean David Hedinger called Follow Me, I think gets to the heart of the matter. And this is what Jean writes. The ultimate issue in the universe is leadership. Who you follow and what directs your life is the most important thing about you. Tell me who your leader is, and I can immediately tell all kinds of things about you, even if your leader is yourself. And then he says, which most of us actually prefer. The question confronting each of us, I think, this morning is not whether we will follow someone. We will question is, who will we follow? And who can we really trust? I was struck by the remarkable global and cultural insight of our recent guest, Michael Ramsden. I hope you got to hear him. This bright Brit is an amazing friend and a person who travels the globe. And in a leadership conversation he had, he described the pretty massive cultural shift across the secular West of our time. He said it used to be that there was a divide more ideologically around political views, the right and the left. But he said today there's something different occurring. And that is that there is not just a right-left ideology, there is an establishment, anti-establishment divide. And I think as we've observed this political season, we begin to understand there are many who are increasingly viewing all of life through a, either a, an establishment or an anti-establishment lens. In fact, the anti-establishment lens seems to be quite vivid and the passion's quite profound. And politicians, you know, they, they sense the wind blowing in this matter and uh, they are seeking votes. That's what politicians do and they're tapping into this new emerging cultural polarity, it seems to me, because the tailwinds are growing strong in an anti-establishment fervor. But the good news I have for you this morning is unlike current political leaders, this morning's text that we are going to look at points us to a leader who we can really, really, completely, completely trust. And this leader doesn't need your vote. Did I hear an amen on that? No. But we will see he does want something else. If you brought a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 8. 
Now, as a church family, I want you to know, and again, I welcome all of you here this morning, but as a church family, we have been exploring together Jesus' most brilliant and famous sermon. It is called the Sermon on the Mount by those who are church people. And it is found in Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 through 7. What we have encountered the last few weeks is Jesus' authoritative teaching. In other words, Rabbi Jesus is now seen in all of Israel in the first century as the leading rabbinical authority on what is the good life and who is the good person. So following Jesus' sermon, Matthew, the gospel writer, pens these words. Chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, as thoughtful listeners and thoughtful observers of the sacred text, I want you to notice that these two verses are utilized by Matthew to amplify the amazing response to Rabbi Jesus' sermon. But also, you'll notice how these two particular verses are the literary bridge that connects chapter 7 with chapter 8. And the connecting span of that bridge is this word translated in English, authority. Authority. That's going to be very important for us to grasp to follow Matthew's thought. Authority. Now, in chapter 7, as we look back, Jesus' authority, his teaching authority, is put on brilliant display for us in this sermon, right? But now, the gospel writer Matthew will put on brilliant display Jesus' authoritative power. In other words, his authoritative teaching will be a little bit on the back seat, and in the front seat of his thought is this authoritative power. We have seen supremely brilliant Jesus. Now we are presented the sovereignly powerful Jesus. And I want you to think of this chapter. We are going to cover parts of it, but what Matthew does, if you're a quilter, remember a quilter here, uh, with his artistic pen, Matthew patches together a beautiful quilt. He stitches together five stories, short stories in this chapter. And I encourage you to read them more carefully today and this week. And he sews them together with a common thread of purpose. And we need to capture this. The common thread of purpose is this that Jesus has powerful authority over all dimensions of human reality. In other words, this quilt is going to accentuate three powers, three realms, the power over human life, secondly, over the natural world, and third, in a crescendo, power over the supernatural world. So this is where Matthew is going. Emerging in this quilt, at the heart of this patch literary quilt, are two big truths that just jump out at us. And that's where we're going to go this morning, if you're following along mentally or you're with me, uh, the structure of the text. First, we're going to see that Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all authority. And then on the heels of that is that Jesus, yes, Jesus demands a response. So let's jump in. Jesus has all authority. Now you'll notice in verses 1 through 17, if you have your electronic or paper text open, that Matthew will make a persuasive case that Jesus has authority over all these human, natural, and supernatural realms. And he first focuses, in verses 1 through 4, on the human realm of Jesus' authority. 
he presents to us the physical healing of a leper. And it is not incidental that he chooses a leper, uh, someone who has leprosy, because if you've been following along, Jesus, as the King Jesus, now presents his kingdom that is available to all. Not just the who's who, but the who's that. Not just the Jewish people, but all of the world, those who are marginalized. And when we go back to the first century, it's hard to imagine any group of people who are more outcast and marginalized than lepers. Let's go back into the first century culture with our sandals for a moment, if you join me. As we enter this text, lepers or people who had leprosy were not just down on their luck. <laughs> they were absolutely without hope. This disease brought hideous disfigurement. It brought nerve damage, skin sores, progressive debilitation, and a slow, drip, drip, suffocating death sentence. Not only that, the lepers were quarantined from all society. They felt the social isolation, can you imagine? The ostracism and the social shame on top of it because what was perceived as their great sin and God's judgment. People around them, if they even came within eyesight or earshot, feared physical contamination and Religious Jewish people feared spiritual uncleanliness. The devout religious would avoid lepers at all cost. Imagine this. Imagine having leprosy in the first century. Lepers were devoid of all human contact. Can you imagine a more hellish human existence? Now, Matthew doesn't tell us in the text, he's being succinct, what all was going on in the cultural moment. But he does remind us that what the leper does is shocking. He violates all social convention. And can you imagine the leper going to Jesus? There's a crowd around him. <clears throat> and once they see the leper, they scatter. There are often insults cast out to those poor lepers. And there was fear everywhere and outrage. What the leper was thinking, we don't know. But I wonder what Jesus was thinking. Rabbi Jesus was thinking as the whole crowd parted and the leper made his way right in front of Jesus. Perhaps Jesus, the creator and sustainer and redeemer of all reality, looked at this precious image bearer disfigured by illness and disease and cried out in his heart, this is not the world I created. The sparkling crown of creation was massively disfigured in front of his eyes. Unlike the rabbis of his day, Jesus does not avoid him. Notice what the text says. Jesus reaches down and touches him. How long had it been since someone touched him? And Jesus was not defiled as the Son of God. The leper is instantly healed and made clean. And notice the leper says something to Jesus, Lord, if you can make me clean, do it. Do it. I can't fully grasp what it must have been like in the first century for those around that leper. 
but I do have some idea of what a life is like with a person who has AIDS, particularly in the 1990s. In the 1990s, not much was known about AIDS. Fear of being contaminated with this horrific disease, as well as the shame attached to it by many communities who deemed AIDS as a divine judgment was unimaginably painful for those who had AIDS. I remember a young man named Michael who had been living a promiscuous gay lifestyle and had contacted the AIDS virus. Even though there was a lot of cultural fear and condemnation swirling around him, Michael was welcomed with open arms in our church family. His faith in Christ began to grow. Many times he was in our home for dinner, a part of our community group, prayed and prayed for Michael that God would heal him. But over time, can you imagine, we watched his physical condition deteriorate. I will never forget visiting Michael for the last time in the hospital. I walked into his room and the sights and sounds and smells and the shadow of death greeted me. My friend Michael was skin and bones. His body was now racked with pain and fever. And as I sat by his bed, we both knew death was nearby. We talked of hope beyond the grave, of the forgiveness of Christ, the resurrection body that followers of Jesus would one day have. And as I often do in a, in a hospital room, I asked Michael if there was anything I could do for him at all. His response completely surprised me. He said to me, Pastor Tom, he always called me that respectfully, he said, would you rub my back? As I rubbed his bonish, feverish back, what I realized was his deepest longing was not merely for relief from the pain he, pain he felt, but for the feeling and human touch he missed. My friend Michael died a few days later. Now why Jesus physically didn't heal Michael when he healed a leper, I don't know, in the first century. I don't understand all that. But Matthew reminds us here in fresh and hopeful ways that Jesus has absolute authority over the human realm, even the most horrendous illness. And we have hope that one day he will restore all human illness and brokenness. Matthew does not blush or blink at Jesus' awesome power. And he continues, doesn't he? The next story in verses 5 to 13, we see Jesus encountering another outsider in Israel, a Roman soldier, a centurion. We know from the gospel writer Luke that this Roman soldier who led a hundred other soldiers had a love for God as he knew him. He not only did that, he, Luke tells us he built a synagogue, a place of worship for God's Jewish people. So we encounter this story. Roman centurion comes. Luke tells us there's an entourage. He, and through his entourage, he makes an appeal. 
to Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, to heal his servant who the text says is suffering excruciatingly in pain. What is stunning is Rabbi Jesus does the culturally unthinkable as a rabbi and he offers to go to a Gentile's house. And I just love this because wanting to quote, protect Rabbi Jesus from being defiled in a Gentile home, the centurion in his entourage simply asked Jesus, just give the order, it'll be done. See, the Roman soldier understood authority and power because he knew when he gave an order in Palestine, it came directly from Rome. When he spoke, Rome spoke. The most powerful authority on earth. And the centurion knew that when Rabbi Jesus spoke, all authority of the universe spoke. God spoke. No wonder, Rabbi Jesus, almost in a sense of uncontainable delight, the text. Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. Notice how the gospel writer uses a Gentile centurion's faith as a teachable moment for the Jewish people. He inserts a commentary of Jesus' words that just because you're genetically Jewish, just because you were born into a Jewish family doesn't mean that you're gonna get to the banquet at the end of time. Many people outside the Jewish, quote, faith, the Jewish genes will become official sons of Abraham when they embrace the Messiah. A banquet of joy one day, a reality of judgment the other. Most of Matthew's Jewish readers must have recoiled at the rich truth of that text. Jesus' authoritative power over the human realm is seen in Jesus healing a leper, yes, a Roman soldier's servant, but also, again, healing Peter's mother-in-law in verses 14 through 17. And notice all the healings are instantaneous and complete. There's no trickery, no shenanigans, no sleight of hand illusions. When Jesus heals, he does it right. And notice also that Matthew includes the footprints of Isaiah's prophecy to point to the fingerprints of Jesus' divinity. The Messiah who'd come would heal the sick. Matthew gives us an exclamation point of Jesus' power. Notice also the power continues not only in the human realm as the chapter goes. You can look at this carefully. Jesus calms the storm in verses 23 and following and his disciples are just spitless scared and then they marvel and they cannot help. When Jesus says to the storm and it's a big storm on the Sea of Galilee and there's no delay, when Jesus says one word, and the most ferocious storm becomes absolutely calm like that. And the disciples go, who is this that all of nature immediately heeds his word? Wow. And the chapter ends with Jesus' absolute power over demonic forces in the supernatural world. See, Matthew's telling us when Jesus arrives in our world, 
Illness becomes wellness. Brokenness becomes wholeness. Chaos becomes calmness. Torment becomes peace. And Jesus' power over all these realms should not surprise us if we understand what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus is the creator of all reality. It's really no big thing to arrange an atom or two. Book of Genesis, we read Jesus as a member of the Trinity simply says his word, let there be and there was. That's it. Original creation is unimaginably powerful and it is harnessed by unimaginable love. Have you looked lately at the Hubble telescope or a telescope looking into the outer spaces of reality? That's power. Writers of the New Testament fill this in, don't they? Who Jesus is really matters. As creator, redeemer, sustainer of all things, you'll notice all the way through the gospel writer John begins his gospel with these words, all things were made through him, that's Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus, this is as upholding the universe by the word of his power. Apostle Paul in Colossians writes, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In these five stories here in chapter eight, I want you to notice how Matthew bookends them. There's a riveting contrast Matthew lays before us. The opening verses of chapter 8 shows an enthusiastic crowd responding to Jesus with enthusiasm. But notice how chapter 8 ends. Do you see it? An entire city rejects him. So here in Matthew's brilliant architecture of this text, his literary arrangements suggest he is not just telling us amazing stories to capture our attention. They are amazing. What Matthew is doing is he's confronting you and me with our need to respond to Jesus. And that's the second big truth that comes out of this text. Jesus says, all authority, you bet. And Jesus demands a response from you and me. Notice verses 18 through 22. Matthew gets right to the heart of the matter in the midst of the stories. He says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, teacher or rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, that's a messianic term, has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple came up to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So at first glance, this section of the text seems to be out of place, doesn't it? But that's specifically Matthew's point, so we do not miss it. It is placed right here to stand out. Jesus' response, notice to two would-be disciples who declare they want to follow him, seems surprising, doesn't it? The first would-be disciple 
Jesus says, cool, hey, let's do that. No, he doesn't say that. Sounds good, no. Jesus makes the abrupt point that following him will not be an easy path. It will be difficult and very costly to him. The second would-be disciple, you notice that? Says, let me, uh, I'll follow you, but let me go first bury my father. And Jesus responds in our cultural context in a shocking way. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But if we understand the cultural context, Jesus is not advocating we don't go to our parents' funeral or dishonor our parents. He's advocating exclusive allegiance to himself. Kenneth Bailey, I think the finest Middle East cultural exegete scholar of the gospel says this in his wonderful book, Through Peasant Eyes. He says, the phrase to bury one's father is a traditional idiom that refers specifically to the duty of the son to remain at home and care for his parents until they are laid to respect or laid to rest respectfully. What Jesus is doing here, he's saying to follow me demands exclusive adherence and allegiance. Period. See, leadership does matter in the world, doesn't it? It matters in our life because we all follow someone. And the big question is, who will our leader be? Will it be Jesus? See, the good news is Jesus doesn't need your vote. He does want something else. He wants your life. Jesus doesn't merely say, oh, listen to me now, believe me, would you? Or watch me, would you? These are all good and important responses, of course, to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say that. He says specifically, follow me. So what does following Jesus mean? That's a really important question for each one of us. Follow Jesus means we are all in, friends. We are all his. Heart, soul, mind, and body. All that we are, all that we love, all that we are, are at his disposal, at his command. Following Jesus is not a half-hearted sentiment. It is a wholehearted commitment. Following Jesus is not a part-time hobby. It is a full-time endeavor. Following Jesus is not merely a Sunday thing. It is profoundly a Monday thing at school and at work in our lives. Friends of mine who serve in the military tell me that when you enter the military, your life dramatically changes. You place yourself under new authority, right? And some of you have served in the military, and I'm so grateful for that, or serve. All aspects of your schedule, your lifestyle, your work, your relationships, all change under that authority. Your new life in the military changes you. I hear words, I love this. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And Jesus, in the similar way, saying, once a follower of Jesus, always a follower of Jesus. It's all in, all the time. This is more of what Jesus is thinking about. And what I love about it is that Jesus, all-powerful Jesus, doesn't coerce us, does he? He honors our freedom to choose. He doesn't manipulate us like a lot of leaders. He simply invites us to respond. And there are only two responses to Jesus. You and I either reject him or we follow him. So that's my two questions of reflection this morning. Will you reject him? I don't know how you are answering that question this morning, but I know he's given you the freedom to reject him. Why do people reject Jesus? There are many reasons. There are three that I find common. First, we may not believe that Jesus is the God or is the person the gospel writers present him to be, that this book is really false. 
Bertrand Russell, the very bright and brilliant atheist of the 20th century, when asked why he wasn't a Christian, said this, because God has not given me enough evidence. Well, while I respect his intellect, I want to suggest that from the natural world, from our own existential longings, from history, from Holy Scripture, there is more than sufficient evidence for a vibrant and coherent faith in Jesus. The main reason for the willful disbelief is not primarily intellectual incoherence, it is our drive for moral autonomy. And Jesus said, men, humans, love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Which really leads me to the second reason that people reject Jesus. I find Jesus, we don't believe Jesus has our best interests at heart. We really don't believe that. We tell ourselves that following Jesus means giving up our freedom to do as we please. But to understand that is to misunderstand freedom. We have bought uncritically into the idea that freedom is the absence of all moral restraint to do whatever we want with whoever we want whenever we want. We think that's where human happiness and fulfillment is found. But that freedom has a dead end. We are wise to understand true freedom is not the ability to do anything we want with whoever we want, whenever we want, but rather the capacity to do as we ought. True freedom is to live the life you and I were designed to live, the life you long to live. And we were made with relationships in mind. And by its very nature, love brings constraint and inevitably limits our choices. A third reason we reject following Jesus is that we have convinced ourselves we can run our life better than Jesus can. Right? There's something deep inside me. Can I just say that? And deep inside of most of you, I think, what I know, that we demand to be our sovereign self, king of the universe. And if we are willing to be transparent this morning, I hope we are, we would rather trust and rely on ourselves than God any day. We tell ourselves we are as William Ernest Hensley said in Invictus, we are the master of our fate. We are the captain of our soul. But let me ask you, how is running your own life working? You know, when you're younger or when life is going swimmingly well, sorry, that's a British word, when it's going great, it's easy to convince ourselves, yeah, I'm pretty good at running this thing called life. Let me tell you, as someone who's a little further down the road, mountaintops are followed by valleys, deep ones. And the question is, how will you do in the valley when life, the bottom, drops out? Whether you are boldly dismissing Jesus or simply passively indifferent about Jesus, you are rejecting him either way with the most serious of consequences. So let me ask you, what is keeping you from trusting Jesus fully and instead trusting yourself? And what if, by chance, you are rejecting a caricature of Jesus? What if Jesus is the most misunderstood person in your life and what if Jesus, our precious Jesus, is one, the one person your heart longs for more than anyone else? See, we can reject Jesus, we can follow him. So will you follow him? That's the second question.
I suspect that if I pulled many of you aside this morning and I asked you, are you following Jesus? Are you committed to following Jesus? You'd say yes, and that encourages me. Let's take a moment, can we? Let's take a moment to see that Jesus' invitation to follow him is surrounded by sober words all through the Bible. In this text, Jesus reminds us that following Jesus requires exclusive adherence to him and it will prove costly to us. Jesus will say in the Gospels that to follow him daily, we must take up our cross. Cross is not just something around our neck. In the first century, it was an instrument of death, a picture of ultimate self-denial. Following Jesus will mean giving up good things in order to gain greater things. Following Jesus will involve suffering. I love how one writer, an old writer of the 19th century put it. Let us then plainly say that there is a crown of glory at the end. But let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross in the way. We must grasp that grace is the very heart of the good news of the gospel, but it is not a cheap grace. It is a very costly grace. Martyr Pastor German, or Martyr German Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer rightly reminds us of the danger of cheap grace and the deception that faith is possible without discipleship to Jesus. Bonhoeffer writes these words, in his classic cost of discipleship, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives man the only true life. Bonhoeffer said it well when Christ calls a man, a person to follow him, he bids he or she come and die. Jesus never hid his wounds and the cross to anyone who would be his disciples. So let me ask you, do you merely believe in Jesus? The demons do that. They recognize who Jesus is. They're pretty smart on doctrine too. Or do you really follow Jesus? One of the most dangerous spiritual deceptions throughout history and in the present American church is that we believe we can believe in Jesus and not follow him. True faith in Jesus leads to obedience in Jesus. And Jesus is the one leader in all the universe over all time you can trust enough to wholeheartedly give your life to and follow. He will not ultimately let you down. The path will not be easy, but it will be joyful. Farshid Fatah, who came out of the Iranian prison recently, one of our dear brothers and sisters around the world who are paying the ultimate high price, described his wilderness as difficult but lovely. The prison cell is lovely because Jesus was with him. When you follow, up, follow Jesus, you give up many choices, but you gain true freedom. When you lose your life for Jesus, you find it. You find it. Oxford C.S. Lewis, that brilliant professor of medieval literature, was an atheist for a long time in his life. 
He came to Jesus Christ and he put it this way, I think best of anyone I know. When he said at the end of the day, there are only two responses to Jesus. Those who now tearfully fall at Jesus' feet and say, thy will be done, Lord. And those who one day will stand before him and hear a tearful Jesus say to them, thy will be done. Thy will be done. So the cost of non-discipleship is infinitely greater than the cost of discipleship. And how we see the beauty of the gospel writer Matthew as he paints the picture of Rabbi Jesus coming to Jerusalem, the one who calmed the storm, who healed the sick, who had authority over all realms of reality, who makes his way on a little, simple, humble donkey to Jerusalem. Not riding a big horse, not the fanfare of Rome, but a humble carpenter on a donkey. Creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all things. Making his way into Jerusalem on a colt. The one who would come not first for a coronation, but for a gruesome crucifixion. Jesus did that for you and me. He walked the Via Della Rosa, took his cross, paid the ultimate price for your sin and mine so that by grace we could receive forgiveness and new life. And then he invites us to follow him on that Via Della Rosa to carry our cross as his disciples. Receiving the gift of grace, Jesus calls us now to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus is the leader you can truly trust. And I am so glad he's not asking for your vote, but he is asking for your whole life. So what will your response be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have authority over all. And we hear your words of this glorious invitation to come to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, that you will give us rest. May we take your yoke of apprenticeship and learn from you, for you are gentle and humble of heart. And may we find rest for our souls. Come to me, Jesus says, follow me. And may we follow you fully.